Welcome to episode 28 of the Live, Lift, Love podcast, PEDs, Positive Enriching Discussions. I'm your host, Clifford Janice. Today's episode is titled, Neuroplasticity, Your Brain Superpower. You can find me on IG at Goltz Conditioning, and you can listen to the Live, Lift, Love podcast on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Be sure to like, subscribe, share, and if you visit the Live, Lift, Love podcast on the Goltz Conditioning website, please be sure to leave a comment. Back again, here with a very, <clears throat> here and excited actually about this guest. Um, reached out to me through email from listening to an old podcast episode and just been trying to find a great time just to get him on board. Um, so I'll bring him in now. Hey, Dr. Philippe. Hey, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How's your week kicking off? Uh, so far, so good. I can't can't complain. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so like I said, I've, I've been anticipating this episode a lot just because there's so much, I feel like there's so much to cover just about you and the work you're doing, the work you've been doing. And I mean, the brain, the brain, there's so, so many mysteries behind it. So I feel like there are endless questions I have, but I, I picked like the main, the main ones. Just, just the, you know, I don't, I don't, so I don't keep you here for like four or five hours. So to start, you know, I'd just like to really just learn about you, your background, your family, and kind of what led to you becoming a neurologist. Yeah, so I'm I'm born and raised in uh, New York, actually in, in Brooklyn and Queens. And uh, from a pretty early age, I knew that uh, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I was always fascinated with the brain. And the reason being that um, I had two people in my family that had two very different neurological disorders. I had a cousin who had epilepsy as a child, um, and so I saw that the impact that that had on her. Um, and then I also had a grandmother who developed uh, Alzheimer's dementia later on in life. And even though you can see just when somebody has a neurological disorder, it impacts them in a completely different way than any other medical issue. So it impacts them cognitively, it can impact them physically, emotionally, mentally. But there's also something incredible when the brain is functioning the way that it's supposed to. There's something really beautiful about it. Um, And so that's really what got me interested in neurology. And what was that transition like for you? Um, How old are you now? I'm 41. 41. So what was the process of going through medical school and choosing neurology specifically? What were some? Did you face any challenges? I mean, I haven't met any black neurologists, so I was wondering if there were any, uh, I guess, challenges based on of race or feeling like you weren't recognized as much as you should be because of race. Yeah, so you know, certainly in uh, medical school, um, there weren't many black medical students to begin with, especially black male medical students. Um, And at one point, I I think I was definitely the only black male in my class, but at one point in the four-year institution, uh, I think in at least two of the years, I was the only black male. And the school that I was at was going through a significant amount of, uh, I guess, transition. Um, And they were... They specifically had some significant issues with the gay lesbian population on the school and the gay lesbian club. And so, you know, when when an institution has has an issue with one group of students, you know, the other minority groups are not too far behind. Um, And so 
that spilled over and, and became a significant race issue. And um, so it was really, really tough and challenging. And there were definitely days where I did not feel comfortable being on campus. And for a long period of time, I actually didn't go to school unless it was to take a test. Um, I opted to not go to class, just to study from home, uh, to miss out on any labs that I could miss out on just because I felt so incredibly uncomfortable. Um, on top of that, actually, when I was in medical school, I was also in, in kidney failure. And eight days after graduating from medical school, eight days after uh, walking across Carnegie Hall to get my diploma, I walked into the operating room at New York Presbyterian Columbia to receive a kidney transplant from my father. So there were some challenges there. Wow. Wow. Challenging is kind of an understatement. Um, what, what, what do you think allowed for you just to kind of have that drive to keep pushing forward? I mean, you said you had the you, you knew you wanted to be a doctor since you since you were young and you know, having family members who had um, neurodegenerative diseases kind of put you on that path. So what kept you focused? to just always do the work and know that this is what I'm going to do. This is what, what I will be doing. And even with the, I guess the, the pushbacks and the social um, limitations, I guess, what allowed you to kind of keep pushing forward no matter what? Yeah, I guess for me, it was always knowing that no matter what my current life situation was, it was, there's always something bigger and better. And I didn't identify myself with any particular life situation. So you know, even with the, the uh, kidney failure, that, that became part of my story. It wasn't everything about who I was, even uh, with some of the um, racial injustices going on on the campus. Um, even though that was really hurtful and really tough to deal with at times, you know, that wasn't the whole picture. Right. So it's always knowing that there is uh, so much more out there. There is there are things that are much bigger than you at play. Um, and if you can just continue to to move on, you'll you'll get to a much better place, right? And your your family's from Haiti, right? Yeah, my family's from Haiti. And so I've been thinking about that a lot, just in terms of how I kind of how I, how I live my life in terms of it's always one being focused and moving forward. And part of me thinks it comes from my parents and their journey of leaving Haiti and. Know, coming to the, traveling a bit and then coming to the United States and just you know doing what needs to be done to change life situations. Do you ever feel that way? Just in terms of your parents immigrating to the states and doing that also? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know that their their struggles um, had to be more than my struggles, right? And they they moved here um, so that they could have a better life and that their future family could have a better life. You know, and so it, it's really about doing the things to honor that, you know, not, not quitting on situations because they're tough when, you know, other people, not just in the world have had it tough, but the people closest to you have had it tougher. Right. It's a, it's a luxury to, to be born in, in the United States. I mean, I think on, on so many levels and granted, you know, there is oppression and all, a lot of things, social issues and systemic issues that bring people down, but looking at it from a, or I guess a relative standpoint, there's so much possibility and capability and, you know, I guess we can connect it to the, the brain and, you know, making choices that allow you to see the bigger picture and step out of life's innate limitations. Yeah. Look, I always say the, the primary function of the brain is to enhance your survival, right? Right. So it's, it's making sure that 
you're going to make the decisions that are going to do that for you in the moment, but also long term. You know, and I think always focusing on the big picture is, is key. And like you said, you know, there, there's not many countries that where I would have been born in where I could become a doctor, a neurologist, an author, and do some of the things that I'm doing. So it is very much a luxury, even though obviously this is not a it's not a perfect place, but it's I'm lucky in that way. All right. So you graduate, you get the kidney transplant. What's the, what's the next step for you in starting your career? So the next step was, you know, after you graduate from med school, uh, you're supposed to do your intern year, which is your first year as a doctor. You're working crazy, crazy hours in general medicine before going off to residency as a neurologist. Well, you know, the kidney transplant put a bit of a damper on that because um, couldn't really start on time. But my doctors were trying to get me to start maybe a month or, or two later. Um, but, you know, after the transplant, it, it took me a couple of months to recover from that, from the surgery itself, from the side effects, from all the medications. And so I ended up taking a year off to recover. Um, and so did not start my intern year until a year later in 2008. And then from there, went on to my uh, neurology residency. Um, and then after that, did my fellowship in, in clinical neurophysiology, which translates very easily into epilepsy. How were you coping mentally during that, that year off? So, you know, I, I sort of turned to the things that, um, that I, I used to do and find a lot of enjoyment in. So I grew up playing and competing in tennis. Um, so I went back to essentially training for tennis three or four times a week, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and getting into that kind of really good shape. And that, that got my body um, stronger. Actually, in that year, I had gotten um, about two months after my transplant, actually, I had gotten married, although since divorce, but I had gotten married. Um, and so there were other things happening too that that gave me a lot to look forward to. So I didn't just need to. I wasn't just focused um, on the tough aspects of the transplant. Right, and I, I feel like it kind of ties in with what we, what we what we said earlier. Like you know, there are bigger things at play, and the other aspect is you know what what can you do in the moment? What can you do now to you know make the best out, out of the situation? And you know you know it's going back to a, a form of love and passion just to keep your brain and body invigorated and occupied so you're not worried about life's current limitations. Yeah. And look, I, you know, I'm a big proponent of exercise and physical activity. I always say exercise gives your brain everything that your brain needs uh, to be successful on and off the court. Um, and obviously it's really great uh, for your body, but exercise is also the best antidepressant, anti-anxiety treatment that we have. So during that year, it played a really significant role in my life, not just the uh, tennis training on the court, but working out, you know, in the gym. Yeah, I, I read in your book that exercise is the the only, let me just, I, I want to quote it to get it exactly right. But it's something along the lines of exercise, the way it functions in our body being the only, the only act that, that I guess, supports neurons. Give me one second, sorry. Well, I always say exercise is the biggest promoter of neuroplasticity. So that's that's your brain's ability to create new neurons, um, to create new connections between neurons, to reorganize old neurons, 
Um, so it, it's really important for the brain. Exercises tremendous ability to create new neurons, enhances the connections we already have in our brains, and builds builds more networks. And building more networks, something that nothing else we've we've discovered has the ability to do. Yeah. So that I mean that that kind of blew me away. Like I, I granted I understand the the benefits of exercise on all the different levels, but I never knew that it was one of the sole actions we can kind of commit. That provides that, and granted, maybe you know, exor- it could be exercised in different aspects. Like you know, people say, oh, not, not, I mean, it's science. You know, sex is healthy, and sex is a, f- a form of exercise. Maybe not as extreme as strength training or long distance running, but would would that kind of be incorporated? Like, is it any like how how like on what level of exercise are we discussing? Just anything that kind of gets your heart heart rate moving? How, how extreme are you? Are we talking? Yeah, so you know the best exercises for the for your body and brain are things that combine aerobic activity and complex motor movements. So you know, like I said, I grew up playing tennis, so I'm gonna be a little partial to tennis. So tennis is great, right? So sports um, are are really really great. Um, and if you're gonna you know just focus on weights, that's great too, um, because you do need the resistance training, but you do want to have some um, aerobic activity involved in that. And, but it depends also on the person, right? So we know that, that there's research out there that shows that people who are starting to develop cognitive impairment, they're starting to develop some memory problems. Even if they go for a moderate intensity walk, 30 to 40 minutes per day, that they'll see improvement in their memories. So that's how powerful exercise is. What do you think is, talking about exercise, like it, it's kind of second nature. Like the way you discuss it, it's just sec- second nature. You're aware of its benefits. You know, I'm aware of it. What do you think limits people's desire to exercise? What is it in the brain that, that people, that I guess causes people just to not be, a, not be willing to, to move? I mean, I think there's just a general belief and general understanding that exercise is healthy and necessary, but w- what is that I'll use the word lacking, maybe. Maybe that might not be the right word. But what do you think people just aren't connecting to have the motivation to move and, you know, just keep up what they keep, keep what they can? So, and look, I think that's a great question. I think we've done a very good job in society in terms of brainwashing people about um, sort of taking the easy way out a lot. And, and certainly that's the case in medicine where. You know, everything is is about a pill, right? Even though most of the times at best, what a pill does is mask symptoms. It doesn't undo the underlying disease process. But everybody wants a pill. They just want to pop the pill. They don't necessarily want to put the work in. And the reality is that, you know, when, when we do exercise, um, people can develop an addiction to exercise because it, it, play feels good and it plays on the pleasure centers of the brain um it causes dopamine levels to rise right it causes the release of endorphins it will make you feel really really good but you also need things that are going to trigger you need cues to get yourself um, to develop the routine of exercising right um so even if it's like you set out your workout clothes the night before or you put your sneakers um, at your front door, little cues to prompt you to do so. Uh, but we've given people a lot of, of cues in society in terms of, no, just, you know, treat your body any way that you want and 
if something goes wrong, we'll just give you a pill. Yeah, and that's part of it is, I guess, the I'll use the phrase easy way out, but it's also it's conditioning. It's to your point. It's just what we're fed to believe that, you know, you can kind of just live how you want. And there's something for that. You know, there's an app for that. There's a pill for that. Any any issue you have in this world, we've created a solution that you can purchase from us versus, you know, I, I can find my own empowerment and find some of the solutions on my own, which is something I'll we can discuss a bit later. Uh, I wanted to get back into, you know, you being a neurosurgeon and th- those first few years, you know, challenges you faced, whether I guess just, you know, doing the work for the first time and maybe during your residency, some of the, some of the challenges you faced or just great experiences you've had also. Yeah. So, so I'm a neurologist and, and by training, I'm a epileptologist, so an epilepsy seizure disorder um, specialist. And, you know, I think it's um, a lot of the challenges you face are the challenges that a lot of doctors face. It's about, um, you know, you feel like you are an imposter, right? Um, <laughs> you know, you, why, why is that? <laughs> well, I think you're, you're dealing with people's lives. It's like you go from student to automatically being in a position where you are potentially making decisions that can either kill somebody or render them disabled or, you know, or, or lead to their health and well-being. Right. Um, and, you know, for a really long time, I think a lot of doctors go through that process of, am I really the person most qualified to do this, right? So when you're in your, your um, I don't know, your late 20s, you, you, you're trying to figure that out, right? And certainly, I think as a, a Black doctor, when the vast majority of your patients are going to be white, that may add um, an extra layer of that. Uh, but one of the things that I've found is, and, and I think it's it's one of the things that's really humbling and amazing about medicine, is that people allow you into their lives at a time when they are the most vulnerable, the most scared, and the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, they don't care what you look like as long as you can help them, as long as you take the time to listen to them, as long as you do uh, your very best for them. And so it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah, I feel like that's the complaint or I guess general frustration with with a lot of people and just physicians in general. It's not, I mean, in life, not feeling heard, right? You, you go to this person for a specific reason, you know, it could be a friend, family member, but especially with physicians in terms of, you know, your life being in their hand, you present your challenges, your issues, your, your pain, and you just don't feel heard. So yeah, I, absolutely. I think it, it it's just great human connection, right? Like you can apply the same, um, I guess, same logic, the same standard of any peer-to-peer relationship into your your profession. You know, you treat your friends and family members with a certain level of respect. You listen to them, you hear them, and you you interact with them based off of what they say. And, you know, you bring that into your profession and you do kind of do what what needs to be done. And you you build trust and you build relationships with people. Yeah. And and look, the fact that since I was 18 years old, I've been a patient, right? And I went through this kidney failure, kidney transplant process. It's really made me a much better doctor because I know what it feels like to um, take medications and have side effects. I know what it feels like to face your mortality. I know what it feels like to look into the mirror and not recognize who you are anymore. I know what it feels like to walk into a doctor's office and not feel heard. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time talking and listening 
uh, to my patients, listening to all the things that are impacting their health, right? And not just saying, okay, I'm going to put you on this medication and that's it. You know, it, it's sometimes, it's not about that. Sometimes it's it's about helping them look at their life and health in a completely different way. It's about helping them navigate the stresses of their life. It's about helping them figuring out how they can eat better or how they can incorporate exercise in their into their um, diet. It's about helping them to improve their sleep hygiene. So, you know, that that's those are the kind of things that have made me a, a really good doctor and have allowed me to connect really well with my patients. It's because I don't see them as a case. And that's one of the things that I really hate about medicine is when uh, healthcare providers refer to their patients as cases. I refuse to do that. I always see them as a person who's got, and that person has a lot of different things impacting their health. So it's like, let's get to the the root of the issue and figure out how we can really get you healthier. Do you remember when you stopped feeling like an imposter? Was there a specific moment where you're like, you know what? I got this. I'm good moving forward. Or was it like a gradual transition of just, you know, small, small, small wins that just led to the overall larger win? You know, I think it was probably gradual, but if I have to pick moments, um, I would say it was probably in residency and I was a neurology resident at NYU and, um, you know, you're, you're covering these big institutions, NYU Bellevue and the Manhattan VA. And I was on call one night by myself, so the only you know neurologist on call for Bellevue and the Manhattan VA, and it was a really, really busy night. And um, saw a bunch of patients. They needed like, you know, they needed like lumbar punctures. They needed all sorts of things, and got everything done. And in the morning, I had to present to all the residents as well as the uh, you know the attendings and the chair of the department whoever came in overnight. And so, you know, I'm presenting and I'm like, oh yeah, and you know, I'm telling them about uh, two people in particular, both of them needed lumbar punctures. And then so the chairwoman turns to the, uh, the senior residents and is like, make sure you get the lumbar punctures done today. And I said, oh no, I took care of that. I, I did both of them overnight. And she's like, you did everything overnight? I was like, yeah. She was like, that is what a resident should be. And I was like, oh, I got this. I'm pretty good. <laughs> that's all it takes right <laughs> it's like a simple acknowledgement right? like like he's doing his job you're like oh yeah like i am like that's what everyone should be doing right <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's uh and I, I know i'm assuming no two days are alike but what would an average day be like for you and i want to compare it to like when you first started versus now now that you're you know you have more skin in the game how would you com- com- compare the workflow from you know early you to now? Yeah, so you know my days look very very different than they did um, before. So after residency and fellowship, I went into group private practice as an epilepsy specialist, and I did that for about five six years. And so my days then looked like I would um, get into the hospital around seven thirty in the morning. I would round on my patients, right, which could be about 20 patients in the hospital. Um, I would take, uh, I, I would see patients also in the office. So it was probably somewhere around 10 to 15 patients in the office. And there was plenty of times that I would take call. And so there were days, uh, there were times where I would be working 30 plus days in a row. 
that includes some 24-hour calls in there just to get two days off and then do it again, right? Um, and so it was an incredibly busy and intense um, experience. Now I do a lot of different things. I still practice. Um, I don't practice as much as I did before. I, I do some teleneurology about once, one to two times per week out of the month. Uh, now with the with the COVID pandemic, before that I would uh, be in the hospital one to two weeks out of the month. Um, but I've written my book, so prior to COVID, I was traveling and and doing a lot of speaking uh, because of the book, because of the app that I had developed, and just on on uh, life situations in general. Um, and then I you know created my online course, Take Charge of Your Brain. So I work on that. So now my days look very very different. So uh, how are you coping or what were you doing to kind of balance out workflow during those 30 plus 30, 30 plus work, work days, more tennis? No, I wasn't. Uh, and that, you know, that, and that's the challenge I think of, of a lot of young attendings is how do you um, balance your life? And, you know, for me, my, my, my personal life really suffered. Right. So I said I was married before and, and now I'm not, but, you know, that played a huge role in that. The fact that uh, um, I spent so much time away from home in the hospital. Um, and, I, you know, doctors have very high divorce rates compared to the general population. And, and the other thing that's sort of like the dirty little secret in medicine is doctors have very high suicide rates. And in fact, right. a million patients per year in the United States lose their physician uh, to suicide. And so I think balancing... We, we need to do a much better job of, of uh, balancing our lives, especially when we're early on. You know, some, some doctors are never able to sort of get out of that trap. Um, and I remember there was this surgeon that I knew who was probably, at the time, he was probably like in his 60s. And he would say, yeah, you know, when I go home, I feel like I need to have my ID on so my kids know who I am. And so, yeah, so I think that that... that that balance is incredibly important to establish. Do you think some of the, I guess the overworking, is it just the culture early on? Is I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming that there are a lot of factors. There's just the culture and the nature of the work. There's also the, I want to assume there's also the desire just to kind of prove yourself and just to be there to learn as much as possible and just to become a recognized face. Um, what, what other layers do you think might be part of part of the issue? Yeah, it's the hierarchy of medicine. Um, so, you know, even when you start out as a new attending, you're at the bottom of the ladder, right? And so, um, you know, you don't get your choice of vacations. You have to do a lot more of the calls um, or, you know, maybe even a lot more of the sort of scut work, the administrative work. Um, you know, you've got people always telling you what to do. You're, like you said, trying to prove yourself. You're trying to build up the amount of patients that you do get because depending on, you know, where you work, you you need to earn money and you earn money by seeing patients. And not only do you need to earn your salary and benefits, but you need to earn much more than your salary um, and benefits. Right. Or, you got to pay back loans, right? <laughs> well, well, one, you got to pay back loans, but two, yeah. you know, the organization or institution that you're working for, they they want to make money off of you also. 
right? So if you're getting paid, I don't know, let's say $250,000 a year in salary, well, and but you also have benefits, they're probably spending north of $300,000 on you per year. So you've got to not just make that money back, but you've got to make enough money that they're making some money on you as well. Um, right. And so, yeah, and, and like you said, you want to prove yourself, right? You, you want to prove it to yourself. You want to prove it to your colleagues. They're always asking you to do different things, get involved in research. Uh, a lot of people hope to go the administrative route. So there's always things sort of pulling you into that, uh, into that hospital culture, into the, the medical culture. Have you done any, any research studies? Yeah. Yeah. I've been a principal investigator on studies. I've been the sub investigator on studies. So yeah, uh, those are primarily studies, uh, uh, epilepsy studies. So in terms of new treatments that they were trying out or new, new ways to give treatments to people. Let's transition into your book, Neuroplasticity, Your Brain Superpower. Um, I guess to start, would just you know love to discuss what neuroplasticity is for listeners and kind of get a base of a lot of the, the key terms you've used, you used throughout the book. Yeah. So, you know, for a really long time, we thought our brains, the brains that we were born with, were just was what we were going to have the rest of our lives, that our brains were really sort of static. And the only time that our brains would change would be if we you know, we're involved in some kind of traumatic brain injury, or uh, if we develop some neurodegenerative disease like an Alzheimer's, so some, some kind of dementia. Uh, but we now know that there, our brains are constantly changing. They're constantly evolving, and in, in some real positive ways. Um, and they're changing every single day, every moment of the day. And that change really depends on how you think. It depends on the actions that you take. Um, and so we've got the, we've got the ability to change our brains. And so that's what neuroplasticity is all about. It's about how our brains are changing, how they're adapting, how they're healing after injury, uh, how we're learning. Um, all of that occurs because of the creation of new neurons and new connections that are being made. And, you know, the, I mean, life experience, when going through the book, you, you discussed just everything is is influencers. You talked about you coined the phrase uh, neuro influencers, right? Yeah. Which is just everything and anything influences your brain. Which is you know it it, it makes sense on a, on a, on every level. Like everything you see, you know, you, you look, you, you're processing what it means, what it looks like. You're looking at color distinctions. Like I'm looking at a, a palm plant right now. I'm looking at all the leaves and the, the color. It's always constantly processing. And you talked about you know, we, we store everything that we process, we store, and then it kind of becomes a base for how we interact with things similar to it in the future also. Yeah. You know, and it's really interesting, right? Because our brains go through these real critical periods in our lives where they're sort of more primed to change than other times. Um, so certainly when a baby is first born, right? Everything is new to that baby, right? And so that baby's brain is just like creating a whole bunch of new neurons and new connections, right? Um, other times that people don't even recognize that their brains are really primed to change. So when a woman becomes pregnant, you know, we often talk about um, pregnancy brain that they develop, but pregnancy brain is their brains becoming much more efficient so that they can focus on what's more, most important in that moment. 
um, focusing on enhancing the survival of their baby. Right? But even if you're not going through one of those critical periods, your brain is constantly, constantly has the ability to change as long as you're giving your brain what it needs. And so having new experiences is incredibly important. Um, being creatures of habit is really killing our neurological potential. And so we've got to find ways to challenge our brain and having new experiences does that. Yeah. Like I talk about creativity a lot. And so a lot of my brain rewiring was due to reading super brain by Deepak Chopra. And I forget, forget the other gentleman. And yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, And it was, it allowed me to kind of separate my brain and just the functionality of my brain from who I am as a person, the, the, the what I am versus the who I am. Mm-hmm. And once I was able to kind of separate the two and actually once I was able to kind of separate the two, it allowed me to be more of a creative and more of a shaper and kind of take more control of the direction I want my life to, to go in because the, the conditioning that we know what kind of fed into that what kind of fed is just that, you know, this is just your brain and you just, you, you do what you're told or you do what the, I say the system kind of allows or presents to you. But through shifting and seeing that I, as the individual and the person, I have the power to create. I have the power to have these new experiences. I have the power to process and, you know, to your point, heal my brain and change my brain and change the scope of how I kind of want to experience life. It opened up more possibilities to again, how I experience this life, how I experience life and how I go about my day to day and what I'm able to kind of achieve or um, I guess re- reprocess and rethink and redevelop, I mean, especially de- dealing with d- depression, um, I guess, overall throughout, throughout most of my, my life. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, we are not our brains. Right. And it's really important that we become the leaders that our brains so desperately need us to be. If we don't, our brains can take us down these really dark paths in life. Um, you know, I often sort of compare the brain to like a, sort of a, a child throwing a tantrum. You know, have you ever had those experiences where like somebody might might piss you off in the moment, and then all of a sudden you start thinking about everything you hate about that person, everything that's going wrong in your day, everything that you hate about your life, everything that you hate about the world. It's like yep. <laughs> moment. Someone pissed you off. Makes right. everything else, you know, this this absolutely horrendous place. And that can have a lasting impact, not just for hours, but sometimes for days, depending on the person. Right. Um, and so you've gotta become the leader that your your brain needs you to be. You've gotta you've gotta take charge of your brain. Right. Like it, it you also talked about mindfulness, which um we'll, we'll transition to in a bit. But I, I also thought about while I was reading your book, I, you know, I thought back, thought back again to super brain and going back in, into depression. One of the things they talked about was language, and you know the the general belief. On one aspect, it's like the you know the self fulfilling prophecy: what you say, what you believe, what you condition into your brain to believe. That's what you're going to become. You know who who I am, who I am, who I work toward to be today is who I'll become tomorrow. And they made this very distinct. They made this distinction between I am depressed versus I have depression. 
Um, and saying I'm depressed is personifying with the with the disease and saying making it part of who you are as an individual. But saying I have depression is just it, it acknowledges that it's other. It's not part of me. It's not who I am. And that was that was like a life changing moment for me. Stepping away and not 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 allowing the depression to be part of me. It's just an experience that I go through. It's no longer part of my identity. It comes in it comes in waves. You know, it's here for a little bit, disappears, but it's not my end all be all. It's just something that occurs because of life life experiences. Yeah, and look, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my in my online course is all these experiences that we have, all these diagnoses that we may have, we can use them to our benefits. We can actually use them to connect with other people, to help other people change their lives, right? I mean, I said before that, look, you know, having had um, kidney failure and a kidney transplant allows me to be a much better doctor because it allows me to connect with people. You know, I, I had never thought that I was a, the kind of person in, to to uh, have depression until I had depression a few years back, you know? And again, that made me a better doctor because I was able to connect with people. And I didn't, you know, I didn't work on my depression with pills. You know, oftentimes doctors actually, we make much different decisions for ourselves than we do for, for the patients that we care for. Um, but again, it was about changing things in my life. It was about thinking about my life in very, very different ways. It was about getting up every day and doing the work that helped me to overcome that. Yeah, I mean, th yeah, th there's this personal experiences allow for greater connectivity right if focusing on depression you know we you know we've you go through the motions you know what the experience is like you know how to reprogram your brain or refocus your perspective on it in order to not allow it to kind of um take center, center stage and be the main focus of of your life experience and going through that you're able to better communicate to other people who have depression how you went through it and help them find their own their own individual way to deal with it or cope or you know get get out of the rut whereas to the point of just taking a pill i'm not educating you on anything i'm giving you this solution that's supposed to work universally for everyone but everyone has different layers and different um, life experience that led them to to the, their depression so by doing the work on our own as individuals and making the effort to kind of, again, I, I keep using the word experience, but just experience more in life. It allows us to connect more with other people. And, you know, to your point, it allows us to, I use the word compassion, maybe have more compassion and interact with people on a different level because we've gone through it and we know the struggles and we, we understand the the challenges of like pushing through life limitations, but also the success that comes from doing the work consist consistently and putting putting the effort in. Yeah, and look, there's a big difference between reading about something in a textbook and having the experience yourself. And like you said, it allows you to connect with people in a completely different way. And so oftentimes in medicine, um, you know, if somebody has something like depression, anxiety, it really becomes about, okay, what pill is going to be best to help them, right? Um, but when you've gone through something 
and this is true for any medical disorder or neurological disorder, but when you've gone through something, you understand that there's so much more to it than what a pill can do. And, you know, pills can have helped millions of people um, and will continue to. But for a lot of people, they need much more than that, that, that little tablet, right? They, they need to change their perspective on things. They need to change what, what's going on in their life. Sometimes they need to remove themselves from certain situations in order uh, for their life and for their health to get better. Now, as a neurologist, pe- I see people all the time who develop neurological symptoms, not because there's a structural problem in their brain but because of the traumas in their life, because of the traumas that they've experienced, because of their current um, stressors. And it's their body and brain's way of saying, look, you've, you've got to deal with this thing right now. So what are some of the major differences between structure versus experience when it comes to the brain and, I guess, neuro- neurodegenerative disease? Well, changes in, in structure mean that... Um, your brain is breaking down in some ways. Neurons are, are, are shrinking. Neurons are dying. Neurons are not functioning properly. Their connections um, are breaking down. One of the things that I tell people all the time is that ideally, people need to start behaving more like neurons. And what makes neurons so incredibly special is that they are efficiently built to communicate with each other. And neurons don't need to be touching in order to communicate. In fact, they don't ever touch with each other. They're separated by uh, the space that we call the, the, the synapse or the synaptic cleft. And they communicate by exchanging chemical signals and electrical signals um, with each other. But when there is something that causes a structural change or a physiological change in the brain, that, that causes, that inhibits a neuron's ability um, to communicate with other neurons in the area, all of a sudden, that's when dysfunction occurs. That's when neurological disorders occur. And we could say, you know, we can call it a stroke because maybe blood didn't get, enough blood didn't get um, to that particular part of the brain. We can call it MS because um, maybe the, the myelin that wraps around neurons and allow them to efficiently communicate starts to break down. We can call it whatever we want, but the impact ends up being that neurons can't communicate and therefore a neurological disorder occurs. When people stop communicating well with each other, whether it's couples, whether it's family, whether it's countries, that's when dysfunction occurs. That's when breakups happen. That's when families stop talking to each other. That's when wars occur. And so we've got to do a much better job of communicating. And I think neurons are are really great examples of that. Yeah. Again, it's me kind of processing and I'm, I'm naturally, I'm an, I'm an introvert. I enjoy solitude and I've like, I've redefined what introversion is to me. It's just knowing who I want to spend time with. And just knowing that that pool of people is very, very selective and it's very small. So it isn't that I'm anti-society. It's just, you know, I, I like having my energy for myself and a few select people. But there's a need for us to communicate. You know, humans are social creatures. It's how we push forward. It's how, you know, we create. It's how we 
how technology advances. It's how we explore and learn more about ourselves and and the universe. And I think of I'm I look at the metaphysical a lot a lot also. And I think about like love just kind of being that energy that that allows us to to build and grow and kind of push forward. And I also kind of relate that to universal energy. Um, like you talk about the the, the neuroverse in, in your book. And when you were describing the the brain, like on the first three, three or four pages, I automatically just made this connection of like the brain being as complex as the universe and this this endless mystery that we may never truly get to know or, or understand. But through our efforts, through our works and through, again, it's pushing forward and building and connecting, we discover more and more and it helps us. Uh, it helps us, I guess, find not necessarily purpose, but I guess meaning behind all of this. You know, it, it connects us. It allows us to. Connect. I, a part of me wants to believe that if we learn more about the brain, we'll be able to kind of learn more about the universe and kind of tap into higher levels of consciousness and belief in you know what this whole life experience experience is. The Live, Lift, Love podcast is brought to you by the Black Excellence Shop. Shop our Black Excellence calendar and journal bundle, 366 days of creativity, motivation, and spirituality. And shop our Black Excellence Daily app for Android and iOS, blackexcellencedaily.com. Yeah, and so, you know, the reason why I said that the brain is kind of, is is like it's, it's a neuroverse is because it really is like its own nerve. It's really like its own universe. Um, you've got scientists that will tell you that the brain is the most complicated thing that we have in our entire solar system. And so when we think about the brain and we think about the inner workings of the brain, the microstructure of the brain, you know, we're, we're talking about 80 to 100 billion neurons, trillions of connections between those neurons. And neurons are not even the most frequent cell within the brain. Right, so it's this really complicated thing, and we've we've learned more about the brain in the last twenty years than we have in the previous two hundred years. So you know, neuroscience is very much in its infancy, and we've got some we've got some ways to go. Um, but the more that we learn, I think the more that we realize that we are really capable of creating our own lives in a lot of different aspects. Right, it really depends on how we think about our lives. It depends on the actions that we take, you know? Um, and it's just like you said, right? You, you would think of yourself as an introvert, but you've redefined what that means for you. And I'm sure by redefining what that means for you, you've gotten to see a lot more of what's possible, you know? Um, and just like you, I would have probably, um, you know, identified myself as an introvert. But it's just that there are certain people I like spending time with and certain people I don't like spending time with, right? Um, right. And I know that the people that you allow in your inner circle is really important because they, they influence every aspect of your life. And from the perspective of neuroscience, right, we've got these, these neurons within our brains that we call mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are there to... They allow you to sort of mimic the behaviors of the person that you're interacting with. So, you know, if you and I are face to face, 
and I scratch my nose, you're more likely to scratch your nose. However, what we also know is that if two people are interacting, their neurons, their mirror neurons start firing at the same frequency. Right? And so they That's insane. They start behaving alike. And that's why they say, like, you know, the five people you surround yourself with are incredibly important. Right. Um, the five people that you surround yourself with have the potential to either take your life to extraordinary heights or to, to bring you down in some way. Um, they've got the ability to increase the amount of money that you bring in, or maybe, you know, can cause you to think about things in certain ways and influence your behavior in certain ways that now you're broke. Right? It's because it's changing the way that your brain is processing information. Do scientists know why that connection happens, why they start firing at the same time? Like, is there some, and I, again, I'll go, I go back to like the, the metaphysical and I kind of want to discuss maybe like spirituality and consciousness a bit. Is there some, this unknown force that connects people that allows that to happen? Well, you know, the thinking is that, that mirror neurons are really there um, to enhance empathy so that you can understand what other people are going through. Um, you can share the feelings um, that, that somebody else has. But again, like I said, you know, neuroscience is very much in its infancy. And so there's still a lot to learn. So, so I also, I want to wanted to ask you about um, THC and CBD effects on, on the brain. So going back into running, so there's this specific sativa strain that I smoke, and I, I use it just like the only sativa that I enjoy now because it makes me feel very creative. I've been enjoying it before I, I go for a run, and there, there is no desire to stop anymore. Like when I, when I, when I smoke it and I run, I just, I feel like I can just keep going and going and going. So wanted to, I guess, ask about how sativa affects willpower or the ability to kind of keep pushing forward. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to, um, THC and CBD, so they have significant impacts on the brain. Um, and in fact, we've got anecdotal data going back for centuries about the impact that, that it has. Um, and then in the 19, late 1930s, I think around 1937, they passed the Marijuana Tax Act, which significantly limited marijuana's availability, um, not just sort of in the, the marketplace, but also for research purposes. So a lot of the information we have is really anecdotal. But what we do know is that, you know, THC and CBD interact with receptors all over your body, and that includes your brain. And what the thinking is that it causes your brain to release uh, GABA, which is the major inhibitory molecule within the central nervous system. So it really calms things down for um, a lot of people, like calms down your, your nervous system um, in general, if you look at a lot of anecdotal data, um, we know that people who are especially creative, right? So whether it is like, uh, Bob Marley or other artists, they would tell you that they felt so motivated to, to pursue their music, pursue their art when they were using 
um, you know, marijuana in its different forms, which suggests that it's impacting your dopamine motivation and reward systems in the brain. So it must be increasing your level of dopamine in that moment because dopamine is the major motivation molecule in the brain. Yeah, it's, I mean, and even on the creative aspect, like it's like the first time, the first time I I enjoyed it, it like, I I just felt heightened. (laughs) Like it, it really was just like a a lightning rod. And I was, I was doing like product shots and I was just in the zone playing music and like working nonstop. And then, you know, not using it or like the next day comparing it to like, I had this amazing, this rush of energy and creativity and, you know, all these fresh and new ideas. And part of me, I mean, on all aspects, I worry about the, the inhib, the, I guess the, the drugs or the um, inhibitors that, that make me feel good and not wanting to chase it, but finding a way to kind of just balance that. Like, you know, how do I get that natural high as natural as possible? Yeah. And so, you know, like we've talked about before, I mean, exercise certainly gives a natural high. Um, you know, marijuana is a little bit different than, than a lot of the hardcore drugs, right? In terms that nobody ever overdoses for medical marijuana or for marijuana in general. The reason being, you don't have, so the receptors that marijuana binds to, CB1 and CB2 receptors, you don't have any of those receptors located in your brainstem. And so it's not going to slow your heart rate. It's not going to slow your respiratory rate like other hardcore drugs. And that's why people don't necessarily overdose overdose on that. Um, so it, it, it works differently than a lot of the other drugs. But in some ways, it works the same way in terms that it causes dopamine levels to go up, which is why people develop the high that they do. Um, it, again, causes dopamine levels to go up, which is why it, it causes people to feel a lot more motivated um, in the moment. And there's this big sort of discussion right now happening in our country, especially in, in, in medicine, about whether or not, you know, Marijuana is bad or good. And for years, you, you'll have a lot of doctors that will tell you, myself included, and I've prescribed a lot of medical marijuana for neurological reasons. Um, but even before it became legalized in different states, we had patients that we knew took marijuana because it helped them with whatever neurological issues or medical issues or mental health issues. Um, and we just didn't write it in the chart. Right? So it, it helps people for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, I, I watched um, your video on psychedelics and the, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the, the, the medical, medical world, they, like, they, they, they know and they've been aware of the, the benefits or the possible benefits of a lot of um, drugs like, you know, LSD, um, there's uh I think I think I recently read an article about LSD and its possible benefits for PTSD, but just wanted to, to have like a brief discussion on um, psychedelics and their the, their benefits for the brain in terms of re- rewiring the brain and allowing us to kind of tap in or open up open up 
new perspectives or reconnect synapses? Yeah. So, you know, all of these medications, they have, they, they change the physiology of the brain in some way by either causing different neurotransmitters to be released or increasing um, the way that receptors respond to them. And so that, that, that changes the brain, right? I think what the concern ends up being is just how addictive that they're going to be because the same things that um, give somebody the high or increases somebody's motivation, the chemical that it plays on, which, which I mentioned before, dopamine, is the same chemical that leads to addiction. And so, you know, I think that that's always where sort of the, the, the balance is, trying to find the balances. Um, is because you don't want it to now impact somebody's life in a negative way to the point that they cannot, where they can't function, where they can't go about doing the things that they need to do in their own life. But they do, they, they all impact your neurons and their connections and how they interact with each other. Yeah, you you wrote about addiction in your book, and is th- is this is that all we're looking we're, we're chasing? Just like the, the rush of feeling good in life. I mean, I, on one aspect, the dopamine is the release and the feeling of euphoria, and addiction is just the constant act, which at times for some people you know can lead to destruction in other parts of life. But o- overall, is that do you think that's just what we're looking for in life? This this rush of good feeling and hoping to. I guess achieve it as much as possible. No, but I think that our brains know that we need motivation um, to to do certain things in life, right? Um, you need motivation sometimes to to eat. You need motivations to to move from one location to the next. You need motivation to um, raise the next generation to to raise your children, and so the brain has developed this way to motivate us, right? Uh, but sometimes the system can be hijacked. Right? And the best way to motivate people is to make them feel good. Because then right. they're always going to chase that feel-good feeling. And kind of creating uh, systems or make, making it a chase that doesn't require dependency, I guess, on, on foreign objects. Like, you know, again, lo- looking for that natural high. What are, what are, what are so, some constructive things that I can do on my own, just to kind of feel motivated and feel good and feel creative and feel like I'm part of the community and contributing to the community. Yeah. And so for yeah. everybody, that, that's going to be different. I mean, so universally, we can say, look, you exercise, that's going to give you a natural high, right? But for somebody who's a painter, maybe it's going to be painting. For somebody who's an athlete, again, it might be playing their sport. For somebody who's uh, a musician, it might be playing the piano. So it all depends on what it is that you are passionate about that's going to give you that natural high, right? For some people, it's politics that gives them a super high. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, so it's going to look very, very different for everybody. Um, and so, again, it's about going back to chasing your passion, chasing what your life purpose is, you know, which is often related, your passion and your life purpose. Right. Um, but that, that, will give you, that will give you the high that, that you're often seeking in life. Yeah, so I said you have four module totals. Do you want to take us through those a bit? Yeah, so I've got uh, 
my new course that I recently launched called Take Charge of Your Brain in 30 Days, where I work with people with neurological and medical disorders to really um, help them get healthier, but also to help them create the life that they've always wanted for themselves. And so Take Charge of Your Brain in 30 Days um, has four modules. Um, The first module uh, is really about the importance of having a mission, vision, and purpose, the impact that that has on the evolution of your brain and how you can use your brain in order to help you find what your purpose is in this life. The second module is about uh, the impact that everything has on your health, but also the impact that preventable chronic diseases have on the health of your brain. The third module is about having a completely different relationship with your brain, becoming the leader that your brain needs you to be, and learning about different neurological disorders. The fourth module um, is about creating your own prescription plan, but one that's rooted in the development of your mind, body, and spirit. And while you have these four modules, there are 70 lessons that are spread across this four modules. The four modules, after each lesson, there's a mini like quiz, three to five question quiz, um, just to help reinforce uh, some of the most important uh, takeaways from from each lesson. So yeah, so so that's that's the course. I mean, I, I love that. Sorry, go ahead. No, and I said, and although it says you know, uh, take charge of your brain in thirty days, people actually have access to the course for a full year. And depending on which package of the course that they um, they take, uh, if they take the premier package, then I also do. Uh, live group coaching with them two hours per week for the full year. Nice. Wow. I mean, I, I love that. I mean, number one, that it's specialized and a lot of it focuses on, again, the individual and what they need to do. Um, you know, mission, vision, and purpose, I think, is, you know, what we all, all need, right? The, 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 the purpose of, you know, what we're here to do, what we think we're here to do, what we feel we're here to do, and then kind of having the vision on how we'll, get to that point and you know, the mission is just the work. Like, you know, what work do I need to kind of fulfill these identities and these roles for who I want to be in life? What are some of your, I guess, chal- have there been any challenges with, with you, I guess, in term- for you rather, in terms of, the, I guess, the Institute or, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I'll keep it at that. Any, I guess, challenges in terms of you know, b- building this out and, sc- and scaling it and working with, clients do this? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is that, you know, like we talked about before, when it comes to people's health, they're really always focused on getting that pill. And this is a course where I'm not prescribing you pills, right? Um, even though I'm a doctor, I, I, I say up front, I am not your doctor, right? I am here to coach you about health, wellness, and creating the life that you want. Um, and so it takes work to do that, but through that work, there's, there's awesome discovery. You discover, you know, the potential and the possibilities for your future. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people would much rather, uh, just, you know, pop a pill and call it a day. (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, like you said, meeting people halfway or meeting them with what they enjoy it makes it somewhat somewhat easier, right? It's it's necessary <laughs> because 
you know, we're just advancing to that point where people just on their phones, people enjoy technology. So, you know, definitely meeting people where they are and I guess creating a system that allows them to feel more in control and it holds them more accountable for their actions. It helps reinforce the the need for work and, you know, you know, the saying 21 days to kind of create a habit, you know, 30 days helps you solidify. I kind of see it like that. Yeah. And, and look, you know, the whole thing with my, my course, it's about giving people a completely different healthcare experience that instead of going to the doctor and getting 15 minutes with them and feeling like you haven't been heard, um, this is a very different experience. You can do this, you know, from your home, anytime that you need. You have the live group coaching sessions, two hours per week for a full year. It's like, when, where else do you have access to a doctor or a neurologist um, like that, right? And so it's about having a different experience. And the reality is, you know, the, the, the Latin word for, for doctor, docere, means to teach. Uh, but in general, doctors are not very good teachers for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and people, when they come to see you, because it's during a time where they're scared, right? There's a lot of emotions around seeing doctors um, that the doctor may be using words and jargon that they're not familiar with. So people don't really understand what's being said to them. And there's research out there that suggests that more than 50% of Americans are healthcare illiterate, meaning that they don't, they don't understand disease. They don't understand why they get diseases. They don't even understand how to solve any health issues that they may be having. And so this course that I created is about doing away with that. And like you said, you know, having a mission, vision, and purpose is incredibly important. We know that a 90-year-old who has a purpose, who has a reason for getting up every single day, will do better cognitively than a 70-year-old who does not have that. Right. I also think about, I guess, going back to conditioning. And since since we're, we're aware of the culture of medicine, of what what it's become rather of, you know, going to the doctor and saying, Hey, my back hurts because blah, blah, blah reason. And feeling like the doctor's response is only based in hearing my back hurts. They like, they didn't hear the, the reason they didn't hear all of the, uh, the underlined issues, why that might, might be happening. Um, so, you know, I feel like there's a, there's a two way aspect. There's an expectation of what, you know, we, we expect the minimal effort from, from the doctor and then there's the, you know, the doctor just like, you know, like you say, 30 days straight, right? There's a, there's a physical, mental, emotional toll being forced on you that in some cases you just might not have the brain function to really process, or you might not be as invested as you can or should be because of everything going on. But, you know, having something that's more personalized, having something that gives you direct access to a neurologist, to a doctor, it, again, it puts you, puts you back, excuse me, it puts you, it gives you more control rather. It gives you more control of your health, which is the, I think the goal for all of our lives. Like, you know, we have these people, or rather we know we have doctors, we have, uh, you know, police officers, we have bus drivers, we have all these careers and people who we engage with in these social peer relationships and they have different roles but it still always comes back to us and what, what what's the effort we're going to put in to 
meet them halfway with what we need. Like, you know, it's a, there's always a need for balance, I feel. Yeah, and one of the things that I talk about in, in my course is that, look, you know, even though when I see patients, I may be the expert on the brain, but they're the expert on themselves. So I right. always look at it from the perspective of two experts coming together to help you solve a problem, to help you get your life where you want it to be. You know, and sometimes I love that. You know, it's going to involve doing a lot. Sometimes it involves actually doing nothing, but reaffirming that there's nothing for you to do. So, so not too long ago, I I saw this woman who she's been through quite a bit. She's she's had breast cancer, uh, double mastectomies, uh, had um, implants placed. She's had something like seventeen surgeries in the last three or four years. Right, so she's had quite a bit of surgery. Her implants ruptured, and they're still ruptured inside of her. And she was coming to see me for headaches. Right, nobody can get her headaches under control. And so I said to her, "Look, you know that the reason that you're probably having headaches is because everything that you've been through in the last few years, your body is inflamed, and you have the you know." the breast implants inside of you that are ruptured and leaking. So your body is fighting a war, right? Um, and her plastic surgeon had this massive plan for to go in, take out the implants that are ruptured, put in expanders, and then put in um, new implants. So I said to her, look, they need to take out the ruptured implants, but you need to be okay that they don't put anything back in for at least six months to a year, maybe never, because your body just needs to heal. And then your headaches will get better. And she was like, you know, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And so that's what she did. And Affirmation. Her, yeah. No headaches. Right. Right. Somebody else might have been like, okay, I'm going to try freaking dilaudid. For your headaches or <laughs> nothing else work i'm gonna try these <laughs> hardcore narcotics right right it's like oh, sometimes there's nothing to do and you just need the, the the affirmation like you said that look you're not in this by yourself i'm here with you but right now we just need to let your body heal that's beautiful man <laughs> like that's what that's i mean that's what it should be right this you know c- communication seems on, on a surface communication is just like this very It seems very simple, right? Like you say something, I hear you and I respond. And if I don't understand, I ask questions and I keep asking questions until I understand where you're coming from. And then I either provide a solution based off of my role or I ask, going back to how I said I like to interact, I just ask questions to help you discover your own truth. And it, 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 it seems so simple, but we just... You know, we just can't get it right for so many reasons, unfortunately. And how many people actually are really listening? Right. right? As opposed to just waiting their turn to talk. Right. I I remember one of the doctors who trained me, he said, listen, when I am seeing patient in my office, you know, the computer is facing him. You know, the, the patient can't see the computer screen. He's like, I am surfing the Internet and just waiting to hear a buzzword that they'll say. So uh, to close out, I wanted to do two things. One is uh, ask you some questions from some of my IG followers. 
And then, uh, you know, just any last talking points about the brain and health and, you know, anything else you, you want to add in. Okay. All right, perfect. Uh, so first question was, why did you choose neurology over psychology? So, so that's a really good question. So <laughs> actually when I was in college, I, I, I did major in psychology. Um, for me, what I feel that is the more we learn about the brain, the more that neurology, psychology, and psychiatry will all come together. So we all essentially study the brain just from different perspectives. But in order to be a good neurologist, you need to understand psychology. You need to understand psychiatry. And you have the benefit of looking at the images of the brain and really studying the brain in-depthly, where psychiatrists and psychologists never look at the brain. They don't ever look at uh, a picture of the brain. They don't, you know, they don't look at the MRIs and CAT scans of brains. They don't look at the EEGs uh, to see the electrical activity of the brain. Um, so there's a lot more involved, but I do think that all of these different specialties will come together the more that we learn, we learn about the brain. Do you have psychologists and psychiatrists who refer patients to neurologists yeah. for a, a van support? Okay. Absolutely. And then you also have, um, you know, as a neurologist, you have to have neuropsychologists or psychologists and psychiatrists that you work with because a lot of times you have people where they need, they need a team to help them, right? Because of whatever they may be um, dealing with. And so, like I, I mentioned before, that there are people that I see who develop neurological symptoms, not because they have a structural issue going on, but because of the psychosocial stresses in their life. And so if that's the case, then, you know, they're, they're going to need a team. Um, you know, I do my very best, but they're also going to need uh, psychotherapy. Um, so they'll, they'll need more people to work with them. Um, next is, what are some recommended things to do each day to build neuroplasticity? So I think there are five things. Exercise daily, because like we talked about, exercise is the most powerful thing that you can do um, for your brain, especially when it comes to um, neuroplasticity. It's the biggest promoter of neuroplasticity. You need to eat really healthy because um, when we eat, it, it takes work to eat. And the process of breaking down food causes toxins to build up. And the tougher the foods are to break down, the more processed foods, the more toxins that build up. And those toxins don't just stay in your body, but they can also go to your brain. And so you want to make sure that you're eating as healthy as possible. You want to minimize stress because chronic stress kills neurons, especially in the parts of the brain that are responsible for memory. Uh, you want to make sure that you're getting enough sleep. You want to be getting six to eight hours of sleep per night because the reality is in the deeper stages of sleep, that's when your brain is clearing out the toxins that have built up throughout the day. That's when the brain is creating new neurons and new connections. And then the fifth thing is that you want to you constantly be learning something new. You want to be interacting with different people who don't think like you. You want to have new experiences. So those are the five things I think people should be doing every day. This isn't a question, but uh, it's kind of a follow-up. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the gut-brain access yep. and the gut being viewed as the, was it the, the first brain or the second brain? Yeah, so the reality is that um, 
you have a lot of nerve cells within our, our gut. And those nerve cells are embryologically the same as the neurons in our brain. So they're connected in that way. They also are connected physically via the vagus nerve. And then they are connected chemically because you've got um, neurotransmitters that are made in the gut that influence your brain and therefore influence your emotions, your mood, your sleep habits. And so what you put into your body, what you take into your body, has a significant impact on the brain. And in fact, um, oftentimes you'll see people who have digestive issues or GI issues, you know, gastrointestinal issues, will also have brain issues. And so something like somebody with um, celiac disease and insensitivity to gluten, they can have neurological disorders as a result of that. And so, you know, it, it's really important to know that the brain and the gut are intimately connected. And just like the brain has the potential to constantly change and evolve, so does the gut. So there's a gut neuroplasticity the same way that there is the neuroplasticity of the brain. I like that a lot, the, the idea of gut, gut plasticity. <laughs> Um, next question is what are some mental exercises to help strengthen memory? So you, you want to constantly be learning something new. And so whether it is a new language, um, so that's really great. You know, reading is really good, but, but sometimes reading can be a little bit too passive and we really learn by doing, right? Um, learning a new game. So something like learning how to play chess is really good or becoming an, an expert at something picking up a new instrument um, is also really important so if you're if you're having new experiences and learning new things that's gonna do wonders uh, for your memory and your overall brain health yeah one thing I've always and I, yeah, you wrote you wrote about this in your book too and it kind of goes back to the idea of conditioning is when I have a thought that I forget Instead of just brushing it, brushing it over or, and you know, it'll come to me, just trying to reconnect or replay the sequence of events that led to that memory, just so I can strengthen that, that connection and make sure that it, it lasts longer, but also just condition my brain not to accept that just because I forgot, like, it's okay. And it'll come back to me. Like, like, no, fight, fight, fight for that idea that, that I enjoyed or that I had, or that I want to kind of evolve a bit more. Yeah. And, you know, Sometimes one of the things that I tell people when they come to me and they're like, oh, my memory is horrible. I tell them, stop telling yourself that because you keep telling yourself that your brain will believe it to be true. Right. And your brain is always seeking to prove you right. So no matter what it says, if you're like, oh, my memory sucks. The next time, you know, you forget the, the littlest thing, which anybody would forget, you're going to be like, see, that's why my memory sucks. Um, and just realize that our brains are like computers. I mean, they're the most powerful computers that we have, but just like any other computer, the more the memory builds up, the more things that you store in it, sometimes it'll slow down a little bit. Right. And so too, that's why it's, in, it's, it's really important to unlearn the things that are not healthy for you. 
I, I love that, that. I love the idea. Your brain is always trying to prove you, <laughs> prove you right. And you know, that that's, that's the separation of like not thinking what your brain is, is, is enough and the individual effort and the, I guess, again, the separation of rewiring my, my brain or taking control of what I want my brain to believe and do in terms of how I kind of want to live my life and exist. Um, next question is what are some good brain fr- foods? And I kind of thought about neutro- is it nootropics or nootropics? I've heard b- both uses. Yeah. Neurotropics. Yeah. That's what I thought. Of, I thought of with that question. Yeah. So I would say, you know, first of all, water is really, really good for your brain. Even if you're 20% dehydrated, um, you can have like a mental fog, you can feel really tired. And so you want to make sure that you're staying well hydrated. So sometimes instead of, you know, going for that coffee or going for that energy drink, you're better off just going for, for a glass of water. That'll allow you to pick the energy back up. Um, anti-inflammatories like your berries, like your strawberries and blueberries and blackberries, those are they're powerful anti-inflammatories, antioxidants. Um, so those are really good for your brains. Things that are going to be healthy fats, like the avocados, um, are really good for your brains. Nuts and seeds and and fish all can be really healthy for your brain. Like healthy, fa- yeah, healthy oils and healthy fats, right? Mm-hmm. Like al- uh, avocado, olive oil, yeah. Um, all right, last question is your favorite doctor slash a hospital TV show. <laughs> yeah, <favorite> TV show. <laughs> um, that's funny. You know, I have not watched one in a really, really long time, so I would have to go with ER. But I haven't seen it in in probably more than a decade. Okay, yeah, I, I, I used, used to watch ER when I was like in high school. I, I remember those days too. But it's funny, people. Um, like real medicine is nothing like the show ER. So. I- <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I love Scrubs, and I mean, from everything I've heard and seen, they say, they say that like that's the most accurate, um, I guess, medicine depicted show that's like ever been produced. Yeah. And on that note, I'd like to end this episode of the Live Lift Love Podcast, PEDs, Positive and Enriching Discussions. I'm your host Clifford Janice. You can find me on IG at Gold's Condition. Doctor Philippe, can you tell the people where they can find you and the Inlay Institute? My Instagram handle is philippe.md. That's P-H-I-L-I-P-P-E dot M-D. You can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn at Philippe Dion MD. Or you can visit my website, inleybrainfitinstitute.com, www.inlebrainfitinstitute dot com. You can listen to the Live Left Love podcast on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and YouTube. Be sure to like, subscribe, share. And if you visit the Live Left Love podcast on the Ghost Conditioner website, please be sure to leave a comment. Until next time, peace. <laughs>